Merry Christmas, church. It is, it is allowed to say that, right? We had a discussion with that out, out front earlier. It was too early to tell people Merry Christmas. So Merry Christmas, we're going to go with it. It is officially 10 days out, Grace. Where are you, Grace? Got it. 10 days away from Christmas. That means many of you have time to finish your Christmas shopping. Or for many of you to start your Christmas shopping. We're going to have, uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna get to it at some point. But wherever you go this Christmas season, whether you're shopping or visiting with family or friends, I encourage you to share Jesus wherever you go. By wishing people Merry Christmas. By telling people why we celebrate Christmas. Don't be afraid, church, to say the name of Jesus. For there is no greater name that we can proclaim this Christmas than the name of Jesus. So don't be scared. Don't be afraid. Also, this morning, we're going to have a good time in the Word of God today. Don't be afraid to smile a little bit. Don't be afraid to relax and enjoy a time of we're going to be in the Word together, okay? We need to start over. I love getting to be here today. That We are talking about and focusing, on, as Julie said, on sharing Jesus this month. And two weeks ago, we talked about sharing Jesus. We introduced the idea. We didn't introduce the idea, but we, our first time of talking about it together is we looked at the shepherds who were the first living missionaries of the gospel. Uh, they were the first ones to go out and proclaim that Jesus had been born. And we talked about how they shared Jesus. And then last week, our choir, our worship team, did an amazing job of sharing Jesus through song, uh, and we got to see and experience the sharing of Jesus in that. And then last Sunday morning specifically, we had a number of people share Jesus through their testimony of baptism, uh, and we got to celebrate that along with them. So we're, we're kind of in this mood of celebrating Jesus by sharing Jesus, and this morning, we're going to be talking about sharing Jesus through the story of the wise men. So I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, as we look at how we share Jesus. I'm just going to be honest with you this morning. <laughs> People say that like, I don't know, Dave, I guess I've never been honest with them before. You know, I don't know why we start like that. I will continue to be honest with you this morning that as we look at the story today of Christmas, as we remember uh, through the account given in God's word, it, it might get a little, uh, hmm, I think this morning we might get a little bloody. Uh, so hang with me because there's a purpose behind all of it. But since we're talking about the wise men, let's have a little Bible trivia. You ready? A little Christmas trivia for you? I'm really counting on this side of the room today, all right? Up here, Greg. All right, all right. Kidding. How many wise men were there? Man, we're already finding ways to disagree. We don't know is the correct answer. We don't know how many wise men they were. We do know there were three distinct gifts offered, but we don't know how many wise men they were. So for those of you who are building your Christmas theology based on your nativity set, hang in there. It's okay. Just let it go a little bit. We don't know how many wise men there were. 
But we do know that they were wise men, they were of great influence, and they came from the east, which was a really long way away. Now, if these people, some call them kings, uh, some people call them dignitaries and foreign whatevers, uh, if these guys were of such significance and importance and were traveling with th- these three gifts which were of great value, I doubt there was just three dudes on camelback riding through the sand. If they're this important and carrying treasures of this great value, they probably had an entourage with them. There was probably a number of people with them, and that plays into the account as we dive into this later. Uh, but as we talk about it, we, we do know that there were three gifts, but that doesn't mean there were three wise men. You know, oftentimes in, in great stories, and not stories like fiction, I'm talking about great accounts, okay? Uh, Terrence well articulated that one day when he was preaching the word and talking about the message of Jesus, that it is not a story like Jack and the Beanstalk, it is an account. So when we use the phrase story and talk about things from scripture, we're not talking about fiction, we're talking about the historical account, the biblical account of what took place. Uh, we just kind of sum that phrase up easiest in the phrase story. Uh, so I don't want you to think that when I use, if I use the term story, uh, that we're watering down in any way. But any great story throughout history, throughout fiction, throughout literature, we know one thing remains constant. That whenever we see main characters in the context, there is another element that's introduced in order to spotlight the significance of the main characters. And in literature, we call them villains. Because we understand characters, we understand people and significance, but when we understand the villain in the story, it really spotlights the greater significance of who they are and what they do. So this morning, as we look at these wise men, It is only fair in order for us to truly appreciate who they are, what they are doing, that this morning we're going to spotlight the villain. And in this context, it's Herod the Great. I don't know why he's called the Great, unless it's the magnitude of the wake of destruction that he left during his reign. But I want to spend some time this morning talking to you about Herod. I want to paint you a picture of who he is, of what his significance was, and the role uh, that he played during this birth account of Jesus. He's all throughout the story. If we look in Luke, if you look in Matthew, you see Herod pop up throughout. Matter of fact, as you study the New Testament, you will see the name Herod pop up multiple times in very pivotal time, very pivotal moments throughout. Christian history. It's not the same Herod. There was actually in a time where they they called it the Herods. Uh, There was a rule that it was one Herod after the other that succeeded the other in ruling. Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod Agrippa the first and the second. There's a lot of Herods. The Herod we're going to talk about, and it's in this text of Matthew chapter 2, is Herod the Great, the first of the Herods. And this morning, I want you to understand and appreciate who Herod was. So hang with me as we walk through this character. But as we do, I want to really encourage you to think about one question. 
I want you to think about how you answer the question. You see, in Christmas every year, and we've done it this year here, we ask you the question, this Christmas, what will you do with Jesus? Y'all remembering, y'all remember being asked that, right? This Christmas, what will you do with Jesus? This morning, I would like for you to try to answer this question. What will Jesus do with you? What will Jesus do with you? Just keep that in the back of your mind as we unpack and, and dive into this character study of Herod. Let's talk about King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great was an Idumean. Uh, that means he was from a region in the place called Edom. It's easier to say Edomites, but all the history books kept saying he's an Idumean. And it was important to point out that because he was a, being an Idumean means he was a remote descendant of Esau from the Old Testament Jacob and Esau story. And if you remember anything about the Old Testament account of Jacob and Esau, you remember that even in the mother's womb, Jacob and Esau, there was conflict there, right? They struggled against one another. It says they wrestled with one another in their mother's womb before they were even born. That Jacob was the heel grabber. That Esau had the birthright. And remember, Jacob stole the birthright. And all throughout their account, there was conflict between Jacob and Esau. Eventually, we see a peace that was brought to the brothers. But unfortunately, their lineages that came from them, the two nations that were birthed out of Jacob and Esau, Jacob being the lineage of the Jewish ancestry, and Esau gave birth to what became known as the Edomites. And in history, they hated one another. There was always conflict between the descendants of Jacob and Esau. There was always conflict between the Edomites and the Jews. And there was an intense conflict between those of the Idumean descent and the Edomite family and the Jews. And this is what Herod was. He was an Idumean. He was literally born and raised as an enemy of the Jews. From birth, he was raised to hate the Jews. Matter of fact, as he was coming up, he developed quite a reputation. Herod was brave and violent. He was ruthless and bold. His fame amongst his people came from his brutality against the Jews. This is how he got a name for himself, was killing Jews. Matter of fact, he got such a notoriety about him that he got some bad press. He got some negative heat brought on him and he had to flee his region. Well, back in the day, especially somebody as brash and as bold as Herod, who had great aspirations of power, when he fled his region, he fled to Rome, which was the capital, obviously, of the Roman Empire. And while he was there, he started Rubbing elbows with some pretty significant people. His desire was to claim more power. So in order to do that in the context of Rome, it was political power he craved. So he started developing relationships and friendships with people in significant positions of power. Not because he cared about them as human beings or relationally. It was an opportunity to get his foot in the door. Well, meanwhile, while he's here, over here in Judea, Jerusalem area... There was just a history 
of uprisings. There was issues of people overthrowing the, the, the local government. They were overthrowing the king that was in place. And new kings were in place because of an uprising. And then they were uprised and they were mutinied against. And it was just constant conflict and struggle during this time. After all, it was the 400 silent years. And during this time, this, this, all this unrest was taking place in the region of Judea. It was a constant thorn in the side of Rome. They were constantly like, ah, the Jews, there's another revolt. Oh, the area of Judea, there's more issues going on. Send a company of soldiers down there. Send this. And it was just becoming such a pain for the ruler of Rome, who would eventually become Caesar of Rome. And this young, idealistic, opportunistic guy named Herod in Rome heard about the headache it was causing. So he steps up and he goes to the people of power. He uses his relationships that he had formed to get an audience with people of greater power and said, you give me two legions of Roman soldiers, I'll move in down there and I'll take care of this problem in Judea. Matter of fact, I'll set up shop in Jerusalem and make sure you don't have any issues from those Jews ever again. Well, who are you? Well, I'm Herod and I hate Jews. I was born and raised to hate Jews, and it would do me no more greater pleasure than to serve you by killing the problem that you have. Now, he was not trying to kill all the Jews. He was just saying, I'll take care of this by force. And if you speak Roman, that was the language they spoke. Well, the leaders at the time said, good enough for us. And by Roman edict, they declared Herod king of the Jews. A man who was born to hate the Jews was now placed in the highest authority over them in their region. He takes two legion of Roman soldiers, he goes to Jerusalem, and he eliminates any uprisings and he eliminates any mutinies. But because he's so idealistic, he also takes advantage of the fact that he has two legions of Roman soldiers and he begins eliminating any type of political opposition that may rise against him. If you remember from back in the day when we talked about those 400 years, He brought his soldiers in and he eliminated the threat of the Hasmoneans, which was a family that came to prominence during this time. He eliminated anybody who was, who could possibly lay claim to be considered the king of the Jews. He didn't just wipe out Rome's problem. He wiped out any potential problem he might face. Thus, in name and in power, Herod became king of the Jews. Rome literally placed a Jew hater in the highest authority over them. But in order to appreciate this, you have to also consider the state of the Jewish nation during this time. Like I said, we're coming to the close of the 400 silent years. And what I mean by that is if you read the Old Testament, you get to the last book of the Old Testament, and then you begin reading in the first book of the New Testament, you will see a very different theme a very different tone of the landscape of what's taking place and during the between the time that the old testament ended and the new testament began is called the 400 silent years in which during those years 400 years there were no prophets there was no revelation of god there was no voice of god there was nothing that rang truth throughout the jews throughout the jewish nation god's chosen people it was silent god because god was preparing to make the greatest statement he had ever made 
in the form of Jesus. So if we consider what's taking place where the Jews are, I want you to think about what's about to happen in the Jewish nation. They are God's chosen people, right? I don't know what he said. Just say right so he won't look at us. The Jews are God's chosen people. But what's about to take place? Jesus is about to be born. Did God's chosen people run to the, to the manger that night and begin to worship this king of kings? Is that what happened? No. They missed it. God's chosen people missed the birth of the Son of God. And it wasn't just enough that they missed it. It's easy to be like, well, maybe they were all busy that night. I mean, maybe they didn't notice the giant star. But if we start following the life of Jesus, we do see a response from the Jewish nation in that some did worship and some followed him. But we also see the greatest response from the Jewish nation of rejecting him. As a matter of fact, it was the Jews who led the charge to crucify him. This is the Jewish nation. And if we continue on throughout history, you will see that after Jesus was crucified and raised again, which the Jews denied, and then he ascended into heaven, and those that were left behind him, those who were left to continue to be followers of Christ, we call them early Christians, they were opposed. They were opposed most violently by the the Jews. And if you go back and if you study the book of Acts, which we've been doing really richly in our, in our small groups that took place this semester that are taking a Christmas break and will resume in January 5th, then you will see that as the early church was being formed, the church of those who professed Jesus as Lord, the number one enemy of the church was the Jews. So when you think about the Jewish culture, the think of, about the the environment of what is taking place in and amongst the Jews, then it should shock no one that Herod, being named king of the Jews, by a group of a nation of people, God's chosen people who had totally forgotten God and lived in fear of the Roman government and now in fear of the reign of Herod. It shouldn't really shock us that much that God's chosen people had forgotten their identity as God's chosen people. And their ruler, their king of the Jews, was a vile, wicked, bloodthirsty tyrant who murdered Jews for entertainment and looked for more opportunities to do the same. Let me tell you about Herod. It is known in secular history. This isn't even biblical history. This is secular history. So even the secular world recognizes what a psycho this guy was. He loved throwing parties. And anytime these foreign dignitaries from other regions would come to Jerusalem, he would host them and he would bring all of his concubines out. And to get ready for these parties, he would have his mercenaries and his assassins and his royal police go through and he would say, go and arrest the best Jews. That was his phrase. Go get the best Jews. And when he would throw these parties, one of his main features of entertainment was to take anywhere from 200 to 800 of the best Jews and crucify them in the streets. And he would go out on the balcony, the palace balcony above this, 
He would sing this. He would sing, death to them, death to them all, they who oppose me. This is secular history, church. His power, his desire for power and his bloodlust literally drove him mad. He became a mad king of the Jews. He developed, he turned into a conspiracy theorist. Because when you have that amount of power, when you have that amount of say-so, your biggest fear is that you lose it. So he became kind of a conspiracy theorist and started spending the palace's money on all these spies. He hired all these spies to go into the city of Jerusalem, to go into the vicinity, to go into the surrounding areas and to spy out what's going on in the, in the countryside. What are people talking about? Go hang out in restaurants. And if anybody is heard speaking against Herod, speaking against his reign, or even speaking against the fact that he shouldn't be king. See, it was whispered amongst the Jews. They hated Herod, for the record. They were afraid of him, but they hated him. Because he wasn't a true Jew who sat on the throne as king of the Jews. Even the Pharisees and Sadducees hated Herod. And they would whisper how much they hated him. And it's not right for a, for a half-breed to be sitting on the throne because he's not even a Jew. His mother wasn't even a Jew. So he had spies everywhere. And if the spies heard these stories, they would arrest those people. But here's why the Jews feared Herod so much. That if you're hanging down at O'Charlie's and there's a, there's a table across the restaurant and somebody at that table is whispering against the reign of Herod, and a spy hears it. The spy goes outside and lo- notifies the local police. And because of how Herod's mad brain worked, they literally, he had the right to come in and he would take everybody in O'Charlie's, drag, drug them into the streets and murder them. So it wasn't just the fact that, you know what, if we keep our mouth shut and our heads down, we're going to be okay. No, 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 no. If your neighbor uttered against the reign of Herod, he just might come and clean out the whole neighborhood and kill every Jew there. This was the madness of Herod. This was the fear of the Jews. He was bloodthirsty. In his madness, he murdered his father-in-law, who just a few years earlier, his father-in-law was in captivity in another nation, and he sent an envoy to go and free his father-in-law to seek his advice and counsel. But once he brought him in, he thought, hey, you know what, this guy might be a threat to my throne. So he murdered his father-in-law. He murdered his first and his fifth-born sons. Murdered his firstborn son, why? Because he was the heir to the throne. And we're going to go ahead and kill him because we don't want him taken over too early when I'm not ready. He murdered his fifth-born son five days before he himself died. He murdered his favorite wife. He had ten wives. He murdered his favorite wife, the Hasmonean princess named Miriam. He murdered her along with her two sons, her brother, her grandfather, and her mother. All of that because he was afraid to lose his power. He was afraid to lose his control. Murdered Jews by the thousands. It is said in history that by the time Herod the Great had passed away, that he had murdered at least six to eight thousand Jews during his reign. At least six to eight thousand Jews. If you continue reading in the story that we're not going to go all the way through today, you understand that out of fear, 
During the time of Jesus, Herod ordered the murder of all the baby boys two years old and younger in the area surrounding Jerusalem and including Jerusalem and Bethlehem. He literally went and cleaned out nurseries and had them murdered in the streets, church. He was that bloodthirsty. He was that crazy. Around the age of 70, he fell ill with a type of disease that's similar to cancer. And one of the last things that he ordered from his deathbed, other than his, the death of the murder of the execution of his fifth-born son, was this. He got his mercenaries and his assassins, and he declared to them, go into the Judean region, and I want you to arrest the best Jews. And I want you to take them to where you keep them, the prisons, the jails, wherever you keep them. And while they're there, I want you to give them the finest luxuries they want. Feed them whatever they want. Comfort them with whatever they want. Let them have a luxurious life. He said, for I'm going to die soon, and the Jews will not mourn me. But on the day I die, kill the best Jews. And this is his famous phrase. When I die, the Jews will not mourn me, but they will mourn. He was so obsessed with himself that he knew he was hated, but he wanted people to still mourn when he died. Herod the Great. This was the ruler of the Jews when Jesus was born. This was the political landscape when Jesus came into this earth. This was the condition of the world when God chose to place his son right in the middle of it. So with that said, now that we know a little bit more about Herod, let's look at Matthew 2 together. Beginning in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was greatly disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers. Who's chief priests and teachers? And who are the people? The Jews. Important point, we'll come back to it. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. He asked them where the who was to be born? Where all this is coming back later, church. I don't want you to miss this. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Oh, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And on coming to the house, 
they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It gives us a little bit more of a level of depth of appreciation, this story of Christmas, when we understand who Herod was. Look at this in verse 1 through 3. Now, if you remember the type of madman that we just talked about in Herod, look at what happens in verses 1 through 3, specifically in verse 2, when these magi show up and said, where is the one born king of the Jews? What was Herod's title? And he was mad crazy because he didn't want to lose his power. Now, and he loved entertaining foreign dignitaries, you have these this this group of men who just showed up, group of people that just showed up. And if it was just three guys with, with something of value, Herod wouldn't have thought twice to have them executed at the mere mention that there was a king of the Jews that wasn't him. So it assumes that there was a great group and then he was very impressed with these people so he didn't have a desire to murder them, but there was also a group of people he traveled with that he could have easily murdered them, but he probably worried about the ramifications that if I do this to foreign dignitaries, they might have deeper deeper ties to Rome than I do and I would lose something. But it says he was troubled when he heard this. Other passage, other translations that you might be reading says he was very agitated. One translation I read said he was terrified when he learned this. And because of the madman he was, it shouldn't shock us that phrase that happens after it. And all Jerusalem with him. Because how the king goes ultimately determines their fate. There was a fear that took place here. Look at verses 4 through 6. His response. He called together the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He called together the religious Jewish leaders. And he did something he hadn't done to this point in his reign. He asked them what the scriptures said. He hated the Jews. And he hated anything that came from the Jews. And the Jews held closely to the scriptures, particularly which was the Old Testament. But he submitted himself because he had to know what took place. He said, what, what, where do you know about this, this Messiah? Did you see that way? He, he used the term Messiah. And when they had told him, when they had told him, something clicked in his mind. 
I want you to see this, church. Because even in his madness, the fact that he was about to go to great lengths to find this child and murder it admits that he acknowledges Jesus was the Messiah. Because the truth is this, church. Even people who hate God cannot deny he is God. So do not be afraid to speak the name of Jesus. He acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. He recognized the truth and no wonder he was terrified when he found out that all the prophets had declared had come to pass in his backyard. And look at verses 7 and 8. And then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Y'all want to hear the greatest tragedy in this story? But the absolute truth? In just a single moment of time, Herod could have turned to Jesus. He had the opportunity. He had the privilege right there in front of him. Think about it. What if Herod had actually said, you know, I don't know about that, but I'm going to go with you. Don't come back. I'm going to go with you. And what if Herod had walked up on wherever Mary and Joseph and Jesus were at that time, because he's about two years old, and he walks in and he lays eyes on Jesus and he sees these dignitaries fall and begin to worship him. And what if Herod said, that is the Messiah, and he too bowed and worshiped? You understand, church, he had that choice. He had that opportunity. But he was so consumed with himself. He was so power-hungry He was so eager to keep control of his life and do things the way he deemed fit. He wanted his sovereignty to reign over his life. And he missed it. Is that you? Maybe you don't have blood on your hands like Herod did. But is this you? Is Jesus your savior, your ticket to heaven? But you refuse to yield power and control and submission. You refuse to bow the knee because you are so tightly holding on to your life and your control and your power and what you say goes and you, you, you. But I need Jesus to get into heaven. I'm asking you this, church. Is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Understand the context. Understand what we can learn from Herod. There is not a two-way street. There's not room in your life for two crowns, church. There's not room in our church for two crowns. There's one king. And you will either crown him king and lord of your life, or you're still trying to wear the crown. You might even profess him as savior, but is he lord? Or are you so consumed with making sure that anything and everything doesn't creep in and disrupt the way you've chose to write the story of your life? 
I'll go to church on Sundays and I love Jesus. Absolutely, I'm going to heaven, but... And you fill in the blank. And I'm not even going to fill in examples of the blank because if there's a but, he's not Lord. It's the truth. Because you're either follower of Jesus or you're not. You can't hold hands with him and hold hands with the world. Because if they're going in two different directions, you're either going to be torn in half or you got to pick one. Which one are you, church? Suddenly, Herod is not such a bad, terrible guy if we're sitting there trying to justify our lives and our sin and how we like to be in control of it. In the end, Herod died just as he lived. Wicked. Ungodly. And you know, when he died, he stood before God. And he had to confess, I really tried to kill your son. He could have been one of the first worshipers of Jesus that we have in Scripture. But instead, he chose to try to destroy. He failed. And he died the same man he was when he was born. An enemy of God. John Phillips made this statement. He said, In his tender love and mercy, God sent his son into this world to reject him as an unpardonable sin. That was Herod's decision. What's your decision today? Jesus is born. Herod chose to reject him. At the same time, Jesus is born. Wise men from the east came and worshipped him. And church, I'm just asking you this question today. Whose side are you going to stand on? Are you going to stand on the side to reject Jesus as king and lord of your life? Are you going to bow and worship king of kings what will you do with Jesus because the answer to that question will determine what Jesus will do with you we know Herod's answer what's going to be yours can I pray for you heavenly father It's a unique passage in which we see wise men come and the first person they get to share the news of Jesus with, the first person they share Jesus with, rejected it. And God, if we're talking about sharing Jesus, I guess we have to embrace the truth and the fact that there are going to be people that reject you. But even the vilest of the vile still have a chance to hear about your love for them. So God, this morning, pray for the person in this room that if they were honest enough would admit that you're not Lord of their life, God. 
They might have even gotten baptized or, or walked down an aisle. They might have even given their life to you at one point. But Father, they walked away from that because they would love being in control. They love steering their own life the way they see fit. They've forgotten to worship you. God, today, will you remind them the opportunity they have to come and fall at your feet and declare you Lord of their life. Now, there are people in this room who have never experienced your love and goodness and joy and mercy because they have never opened their life to Jesus. And God, today is the day you're calling them. In spirit and in truth, God, you're revealing to them the heart condition and the opportunity that awaits them in knowing you as as Lord. God, I pray this morning that even in a few minutes when we sing and when we stand, that they they would move. They would come and talk to me. They would go and talk to a Somebody in this room, they know as a Christian and say, I need to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, for the Christian, the believer in this room that has walked away from your Lordship, God, bring them back to you, Father, with the desire that they have for Jesus to once again be King of their life and Lord over all things. And God, I'm just going to be very honest with you today, Father, and it just happens that all these people are listening. But I ask this for myself and anyone else here that calls themselves a follower of Jesus. And God, if we are not seeking your lordship, will you make our lives miserable until we turn to you? And God, put godly people in our walk and in our path that point us to you. God, this morning, there may be people here longing and searching for a church family that can be those people to walk beside them and encourage them and walk with them along this journey of faith. And Father, if this is the place for them, God, may they respond to you, not to us, in seeking your will for their life. God, whatever it is, may we be a church that finds ourselves on our knees in front of you in worship. And may we do so in how we respond in obedience even now in this time of invitation. Move us, Father that you would receive glory and honor. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you please stand?